the data on health inequity in America has been startling, and the COVID-19 pandemic has only made those disparities more evident. In the United States, Black citizens are dying from the virus at 3.7 times the rate of white citizens. Indigenous people are dying at 3.5 times the rate, and Latinos at 2.5 times the rate, according to the APM Research Lab. There are other numbers, too, that illustrate historic health inequities. For example, Black women are more likely to die while giving birth at three times the rate of white women, and they succumb to breast cancer at a 40% higher rate than that of their white counterparts. And while it can sometimes seem that medical issues exist in a vacuum, they don't. There are complex educational, economic, environmental, and social determinants of health that must be addressed in order to enhance the quality of life for underserved populations across Texas. That's where UNT's new Center for Racial and Ethnic Equity in Health and Society comes in. Through their research, more than 40 UNT faculty members are addressing the inequities in how people in Texas live, work, learn, and interact socially. Factors that the Centers for Disease Control cite as contributions to overall health considerations and outcomes. Dr. Chandra Carey, Associate Dean in the College of Health and Public Service and Associate Professor in the Department of Rehabilitation and Health Services, was key to launching the center, along with fellow UNT professor, Dr. Tony Carey. I'm a rehabilitation counselor by trade, and so my research area focuses um, pretty specifically on looking at multicultural responsiveness and anti-racist training in rehabilitation, counselor education and practice. Um, I also do a lot of work and have done in the past some work with looking at individuals of color with severe mental illnesses and their rehabilitation outcomes. Um, and of course, more recently, I've been looking at health equity issues um, and a lot of work surrounding integrated care and behavioral health for minoritized communities. Tony Carey is an associate chair and associate professor in UNT's Department of Political Science, who brings his own unique expertise and experiences to his role at CREASE. I have general interest in American political behavior and opinion, but I specifically specialize in um, racial and ethnic politics, uh, gender politics. Um, I also do some work in uh, social movements and more recently, of course, policing and health policy issues related to, to facilitating racial health equity. The mission of the center, the Carries say, is to explore racial and ethnic equity by examining the causes of healthcare gaps, evaluating social determinants of health, uncovering their broader economic and social consequences across the state of Texas, and providing research to uncover best practices and policy prescriptions to remedy these issues. If it sounds like a challenging goal, that's because it is. And it's one they're excited to tackle. It's, it's been really invigorating for me, actually. Um, I've been in academia as a faculty member since 2001. And there have always, there have been research projects that I'm certainly passionate about and opportunities that I've had with community partners that have been really exciting. But having so many other faculty on board who are also engaged and excited and, and all the incredible ideas that um, folks come up with to address some of these challenges, has just it has really been kind of a landmark um, space in my career. And so I, I'm very excited about the work that we're, the potential that we have. And I think UNT has um, tremendous potential in the faculty that it brings here. And, and with that potential, we have an opportunity to really do what I think academia should do 
and that is to improve the communities around it, to, um, to give back to the citizens, um, to be citizens of this state, to citizens of this nation. I think that's, that's our role. And the, to me, this is what this center is able to provide, um, a place where you can have these like-minded professionals coming together to really try to dig into what's glaringly there and address it. And so that's been very exciting for me. On this episode of UNT Pod, join me, Erin Cristales, as I talk with the Carries about the center's multidisciplinary approach to exploring the issue of racial and ethnic equity in health and society, and how they see that approach expanding in the months and years ahead. You know, clearly, um, you have different areas of expertise, but also some overlap within those. And, and both of you were responsible for initiating UNT Center for Racial and Ethnic um, Equity in Health and Society. Is that right? Yes. 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 And I know one of the stated goals of the center is to redress the inequitable conditions that have contributed to the state's current healthcare crisis. And I'm wondering if you can discuss what some of those inequities are and how the center is working to address those long-standing racial and ethnic gaps in healthcare. So I, I think in Texas, probably what most people are most familiar with is the number of uninsured individuals that um, are in the state. So even before the pandemic, um, the Kaiser Family Foundation found that Texas had the highest and largest number of uninsured individuals in the country. Um, and so what we know for people and folks who are uninsured is that they have fewer options in regard to seeking health care. So once the pandemic hit, those gaps were exacerbated. Um, the gaps that impact, those gaps impact children. I think about 20% um, of the children that are uninsured are across the country are in Texas. Um, and about 29% of those folks who are 65 and un, 65 and over are uninsured. Um, so we know that those, those issues are here and they impact how people are able to access healthcare, how they interact with healthcare providers, um, because they tend not to seek care until it becomes chronic. Um, and so you miss those opportunities for preventative healthcare, which just exacerbates those gaps. One, one clear example of that is looking at obesity for instance. And so what we know um, in Texas specifically with obesity is that you have a huge number of people in some of the Southern and Eastern counties, which are predominantly um, are talking about our Hispanic populations and African-American populations um, that acquire obesity at a much higher rate than their white counterparts in those areas. And so those are some of the areas that are glaring in Texas. There are others, of course, I don't know if Tony wants to add any no, I think so. That. So um, what the center hopes to do on one hand is you have these communities that are trying to address these issues and oftentimes because of the lack of healthcare access, um, sometimes because of the rurality that you see in Texas is that you have community organizations and community providers really struggling to help meet these needs. What I think the center and what we think and hope the center can do is to help um, expand the bandwidth of these organizations to examine these issues, to really look at the complexities that pull into their communities that um, give rise to some of these disparities that we see to, to help conduct the research that they need um, that will help hopefully shift funding priorities, um, seek out policy initiatives, but then also pull in funding from grants um, and other providers to help uh, address and alleviate some of those concerns. And so the center, I guess in, in that sense, we are kind of a conduit to help um, 
facilitate some change in these communities, not in a utopic sense that we're going to just kind of, they've been waiting all this time just for the center to be here to <laughs> ameliorate the problems. We're not, um, we're not arrogant in that sense, but I think we do want to help to shed light on it and to provide some of the resources that they haven't had provided um, from government and other policy initiatives to help facilitate movement and addressing some of those issues. And I, I think one of the unique things that uh, the center uh, brings to the table, particularly if you compare it to a lot of other centers um, in the state and around the country is that we tend to emphasize um, more so than others, the social determinants of health and how they go about shaping these disparities. And so, you know, what we bring to the table um, from our perspective is that we have a number of social scientists that are attached to the center who, uh, one, are looking at these determinants and how they go about promoting or facilitating these inequities. Um, but we're also looking at the sort of social consequences of these inequities. So that, you know, sort of to speak to, um, you know, how these things could potentially be ameliorated through public policy or some other uh, interventions. Um, so I think that, that that's a, a way that we um, sort of separate ourselves from, uh, from some other health disparity centers that tend to focus more on sort of the biomedical sort of uh, orientation towards these issues. When clearly, I mean, UNT has a really strong kind of interdisciplinary footprint. And so I'm wondering when you were thinking about, you know, launching the center, how you kind of let that interdisciplinary approach inform what this center was going to be. You know, I think it actually started with us um, because we're interdisciplinary. <laughs> so I think one of the first discussions we had um, in regard to a, a, a mutual research interest was looking at um, police violence and mental health and kind of the, the impact of that, the con consequences of that. And so um, Tony came with his very specific public policy lens and kind of knowing, looking at how that shapes and impacts political behavior and, polit and, and laws and legislation surrounding police. Um, and I was looking at the mental health consequences and kind of looking at the behavioral consequences for people who have negative interactions with the police and how that impacts the community's response to police when they do have those needs. Um, and then really how um, looking at some of the gaps in services for police who aren't who aren't prepared to deal with mental health crises. And so I think that was kind of that first entree into us looking at how we can address these problems in an interdisciplinary fashion. And then it just spilled out as we started thinking more and more about the potential that UNT has because we do have um, a really strong foot um, in social sciences realm. Um, our, our footprint in the health realm is, is burgeoning. So we're kind of growing that, that space right now. And so we didn't feel like that was a good space for us to lead into with that. Where our strength is, is really looking in the social sciences. And so as we started to think through this, um, we got some help and um, a great amount of facilitation from the um, VPRI office. And we worked with Naomi Wood very early on, just even to say who else is looking at these types of issues across campus. Um, and I remember her giving us a list of that and just kind of seeing who the folks were that were here that were interested and engaged in their own research and really thinking about how much more powerful that could be if we kind of coalesced around this topic and were able to bring all of these individuals together um, to try to make some real, I guess, to push to the forefront and to highlight some of the challenges that exist surrounding um, race and health equity. And I think the more we 
thought about it and, and we've come to increasingly appreciate and I think probably the current pandemic sort of forces everybody to appreciate is, is how these sort of health um, inequities bleed into other areas of social life. Uh, I think, you know, before, before the pandemic, I think a lot of people um, are often the narrative in the media and uh, uh, t in, in, in some other circles tend to be preoccupied or sort of think, of, think about healthcare as if it's sort of this compartmentalized topic mm -hmm. that can be separated from the economy and from other areas of life. Um, and I think clearly the pandemic is the best case study of how that is not true. Um, that when you have that basic component of life that has to do with health, then it certainly can dramatically impact the other areas of your society. Um, and I think we are well positioned to explore that particular perspective in ways that that's unique. You know, I know you're talking about too, kind of um, a lot of times health is sort of compartmentalized and not seen in this broader way. And, you know, I'm wondering too, because I feel like a lot of times when, when people discuss healthcare, for those of us who, you know, are not medical professionals or not academics, it can feel really technical and intimidating and, and, you know, people kind of tune out those statistics that really illustrate the toll that health inequity can take in terms of mortality or quality of life or even economically. And I'm wondering if there are examples that put a more human face on those inequities that you've run across either in your professional research or even personally. Yeah, um, so I think it's not, it's not a, uh, a direct personal relationship that we have with a person, but I think more recently, the, the situation with uh, Serena Williams and her birth uh, is really uh, illustrative of sort of the challenges that are present in the system. So for those that aren't familiar uh, with her case, she was pregnant. I think her, I think her, her daughter's name is Olympia. Uh, so she, she, she was pregnant with her daughter. She ended up having a C-section. Her daughter was, 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 uh, you know, came, came into this world safely. But what Serena realizes uh, pretty much immediately after her birth she started experiencing some complications. She had shortness of breath. She was coughing, uh, you know, vigorously. Um, and she went to, she approached her doctor about the symptoms that she was experiencing. And she herself uh, has a history of blood clotting. Um, and initially what she, uh, actually she wrote a, a piece, I think in the New Yorker, from what I recall, um, where she talked about her experience going to the doctor um, and having her doctor essentially dismiss her symptoms, just that, you know, she had to recover from her birth and that, you know, you should give it some time. Uh, fortunately for Serena, being the, the, the strong-willed person that she was, she insisted that they do tests on her. Um, and what they found is that she was experiencing a pulmonary embolism, um, which could have, had it been, you know, prolonged, could have, could have killed her. Um, but I think what that illustrates, one, it, it, um, it aligns with a lot of the existing um, research surrounding the experiences of Black, particularly Black um, patients and specifically Black female patients within the healthcare system. It's been a lot of work suggest, uh, indicating that in fact, medical practitioners uh, have a tendency to dismiss their claims, particularly 
uh, related to their pain and complications that they're, they experience, they're experiencing from a health perspective. And that that can have long-term clearly negative impacts on them. Um, and so just imagine if someone like Serena is experiencing these sorts of racial you know, health inequities that, uh, that for sure those that are further down the income scale are experiencing them at, at much higher levels. I'm wondering too, do you, do you think that when it comes to doctors, you know, dismissing, especially um, women of color, their, their claims of, of how much pain they're in, is that a gap in training? I mean, how do you, how do you address that? Is that something that the center is looking at? That isn't anything that we're addressing directly right now, um, particularly when you're talking about medical professionals, but there has been some research conducted by um, individuals with the center that have looked at healthcare and mental health care and um, medically underserved populations. And so what we found is that, you know, racism isn't isolated outside of your professional standing. And so if people have negative views or they um, have been trained based on what they've seen socially through social media, et cetera, they carry that with them into their, into their professional roles. And so it is a training issue where there needs to be a higher um, a heightened emphasis on being multiculturally responsive and understanding how people experience um, symptomology across various um, illnesses and diagnoses and knowing that that's going to look and be different um, based on the individual, but certainly within a, a cultural context. And I think that is missing from some, I know that it's missing from some mental health training. Um, and I can only assume that it's also something that's a gap in the medical profession. And so I think that that is something that leads into those um, those subtle notes that doctors have where they see someone experiencing pain and they might have um, some type of memory or understanding that, oh, well, this individual, this Black person, they can take a higher level of pain, so they don't need this, or they might be drug-seeking, and so we're not going to make that diagnosis right now. We're not going to give them the medication that they need, um, and while I can't put my mind to it right now, there's, there's a lot of literature that supports um, that Black Americans specifically experience pain and are treated at a, very, at a level much differently than their white counterparts. They are prescribed um, necessary pain medications at a lower rate, um, and they are discharged earlier when they go in complaining of um, issues surrounding pain um, different from their white counterparts. Now, also, just to extend on that, I think it's important to understand that these, these presumptions are informed by certain stereotypes that have been around for quite a long time. So, you know, if you look at, you know, much of the justification, particularly as it relates to, to Black people um, in the United States for the emergence of the institution of slavery is based on the idea that they were subhuman. And part of that, part of that notion was the idea that they were, you know, the Black people were in, in some way animalistic, could withstand high levels of pain uh, and would not respond. And, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, the way that um, you know, doctors are responding to black patients is very, uh, it seems informed by that underlying stereotype. I think it's also important to understand that in a lot of ways, uh, these, um, this sort of approach may in fact be more implicit than explicit. Mm -hmm. So that you know, in a lot of cases, 
if these biases are present within the individual, um, sort of unless they are monitoring their attitudes in real time, then in a lot of cases, those, bi those biases can be triggered without their, you know, without any sort of awareness. And they might be sort of automatically responding in a certain way when they have uh, patients of color. So uh, in that way, yeah, I think, I think it is really important that there's some degree of training to help people sort of self-monitor or help medical professionals self-monitor so that they're sure that they're not enlisting in a lot of these underlying stereotypes that they might have about certain groups. Well, and you know, earlier you mentioned the COVID-19 pandemic and how it's further highlighted these longstanding health inequities, not just in Texas, but in the entire US. Um, and of course, research has shown that communities of color are bearing a strikingly disproportionate share of the suffering. What are some of the main reasons COVID-19 has hit these communities so hard? I think there are a number of reasons that are contributing to it. Um, what what happened earlier on in the pandemic was that there was just really a lack of knowledge about transmission, um, how quickly people could become infected. And so for the most part, while there was alarm surrounding it, um, people who were frontline workers, who were direct care workers, who were essential workers were still very much so in at risk for high exposure. And a lot of the individuals that are in those roles tend to be those persons who come from um, minority communities, communities of color, um, minoritized communities and communities of color. And so you had these individuals who were bus drivers, who were teachers, who were EMS professionals, who were you know, providing these services that were essential for the rest of us, um, but were at increased risk. Um, I think what you also see is that gap that we talked about earlier with the um, access to health care. And so as individuals became ill, whether or not they were, one, motivated to seek access to health care, and, and that's a little bit of a different question to kind of talk through, um, but whether they actually had access to it, were they insured? Could they go in to receive the treatment that they needed? Um, was there a facility in their area that they could easily access? I think all of those things um, contributed to the spikes that we saw. Um, in addition to the fact that we know that a lot of communities of color often have pre-existing conditions that for COVID specifically made them more susceptible to higher negative impacts of um, having COVID-19. And so we, I think a, a lot of those different areas contributed to what we saw with those earlier, with I guess the current increases for how it impacted communities of color. Well, and you know, despite the fact that Black and Hispanic populations have been especially hard hit by the pandemic, Many surveys have indicated that there is more vaccine reluctance among Black and Hispanic Americans. Can you discuss some of the reasons behind that hesitancy, particularly from a social science perspective, um, such as historically? Oh, so I think one thing we have to appreciate is, as you mentioned, is the history here. And that is that the medical establishment has historically underserved Black communities, and in fact has in many ways damage the black community. Um, you know, there are historical cases. Uh, one, one really um, prominent case is uh, the example of J. Marion Sims, who's a doctor um, who was located in New York in the early 1800s. Um, but he, he's, known, he's known for being um, sort of a, a, a major innovator within the medical field. 
but he made those innovations on the backs of experimentations on enslaved people. And so it'd be these hideous uh, medical experiments where he's cutting into um, black slaves without any anesthesia, just to sort of experiment and, and determine how the body works. But clearly from the, our current lens is a pretty, pretty terrible, um, pretty terrible uh, experiment. And then of course, more, pre more uh, to the present, there's always what's very prominent among uh, black communities in particular is the Tuskegee experiments, um, where essentially they were trying to see what the long-term negative consequences of uh, syphilis exposure was um, and essentially neglected to provide the, you know, the, the treatment that would have alleviated the, the syphilis from these uh, black, black patients. Um, and that, that has a lingering negative, has had a lingering, in, incidents like that have had a lingering negative effect on um, the sort of disposition of communities of color towards the medical establishment and medical institutions. But I think it's also just in, in, important to keep in mind that just everyday personal experiences with medical practitioners are also informing these things. I, I, I'm always struck uh, when I speak to families of color, how many of them have stories about how they felt they were mistreated by certain um, medical practitioners, um, mostly surrounding the death of one of their relatives. And if you think about, if you add to that, those current incidences that people experience that are still very much so present in our healthcare system, and you add language barriers that individuals from the Hispanic community face, um, the lack of understanding and the inability for doctors to, to communicate with people who do not speak English as their native language, that causes another barrier where there is a sentiment amongst these communities that this is not the place that you go. These are not the individuals who will understand you or help you um, when you have a healthcare crisis. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we we talked talked about with respect to one of the projects we're working on now is the 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 likelihood of citizens or patients being willing to seek medical advice and medical treatment if they know they're going to have to provide some kind of sensitive information about themselves. And, you know, the uh, community partner that we're working with on that project has voiced that particularly that he thinks that is one of the primary reasons why they don't get as much um, traffic for the resources that, that he provides. Um, largely because of that, of that reason, that people are scared that if they provide some sensitive information, that that information might be shared with law enforcement or some sort of federal uh, authority. Mm -hmm. And you know, for someone who is undocumented, it might actually lead them to being deported from the country. So these are, you know, those sorts of things are also uh, important too. Well, and, and on kind of that same note, I'm wondering from a policy perspective, what are some of the ways to help areas that have been most affected by COVID-19 bounce back from, from these impacts? So from my perspective, I mean, it sort of gets back to another uh, question that was asked um, about what's going on within these communities. And I think one of the things to keep in mind is that in many cases, particularly communities of color and many rural white communities are places where there's been um, divestment for several decades. 
And so there just isn't that, you know, fundamentally there isn't the basic medical infrastructure in place. I remember seeing a story um, on TV, on the news about how the fact that many black and brown people, particularly in Dallas, weren't getting the vaccine was largely because there were very few areas within their communities for which they could actually go to get the vaccine. They had to travel long distances, in fact, to get them. And then when you compound that with the fact that they you know, may not have transportation to those places, that they may have jobs that don't allow them that kind of flexibility to go to, you know, to, go to these sites, uh, you can understand why they are not really, you know, able to, to, to get vaccinated at the rates that other groups are getting vaccinated. So I think from a policy standpoint, I think it's really important first to that, that there needs to be cons some consideration about how these communities, how there can be investment in these communities to make sure there's the medical infrastructure in place for them to actually get the services that they need. Um, I think the other part of this, of course, is just making sure that the policies that are put in place um, are culturally competent and sensitive um, to the communities that they serve. I mean, this sort of gets to some of the other things that we talked about, that if you're providing a service, perhaps think about, um, you know, think about what might be the consequences of asking for certain types of information. Um, you know, think about what sort of medical practitioners do you have in place in, within that context. And um, so we think, you know, think that's certainly a, an important part of this, uh, these considerations too, from a policy standpoint. And I think that falls in line with uh, some, some efforts that the university is putting forward and looking and seeking funding opportunities to build a stronger cadre of researchers and professionals that can provide services in these communities. And so one of the projects that we worked on with the grant before, the very emphasis was just that. We wanted to see if we could train culturally responsive practitioners who would be able to work in these integrated care settings who would understand the cultural and linguistic differences that um, communities of color experience as they interact with physicians, um, but then also who would understand the nuances of navigating behavioral health questions and concerns with communities of color. And so I, I think there is, there. I don't know that there is an exact policy mandate um, that targets this, but I think that there is an emphasis in looking at how we can grow professionals who can fit into these spaces and fit the needs of the communities, whether they be individuals who are representative of those communities or um, individuals who are white, who are trained to interact with these communities in a way that's respectful, but then also facilitative to meet their healthcare needs. And I think the last thing I would say here is, which is really tied into what our center does, is to think, you know, in a lot of cases, when we think of ways of ameliorating or, or addressing these problems, we often think of the solutions as being health related. When in a lot of cases they're not. I mean, you know, we're we're talking about delivering services within communities where there are vast levels of economic deprivation. Uh, so some of these, you know, some of these policies are not health health issues. Uh, they're educational issues. They're economic issues. They're you know a full range of issues that if you know they are actually addressed would do wonders towards you know uh, promoting health equity. You know, and speaking of that complexity and also of um, looking towards the future of the center, I'm wondering how you approach 
planning a strategy that best tackles these issues in both the short and long term? And what do you see the center being able to accomplish in the next five, 10, or even 20 years? Yeah, we, we've been thinking about this question. Um, and, you know, I think our approach right now is to provide a platform for us to understand what's going on in those communities. You know, we have to understand that there is a divide. We're real researchers, we're not the boots on the ground. Um, and so the individuals in those communities have a perspective, they have knowledge, they have information that can help facilitate some of the changes that they're looking for. What they lack are resources and research and policy. And so I, I think our first efforts are really trying to understand the nature of what's happening and the complexity of what's happening in those communities. And certainly that will happen through some research endeavors, but it also happens in building relationships with those communities. I think there has been just a natural divide between um, the citizenry and academia. And that, that divide prevents us from finding solutions that are probably there um, that just haven't had an opportunity to reach scale. And so, you know, as we think about moving forward, um, five, 10, 20 years is hard to, <laughs> it's hard to envision. Um, but I think there are solutions in these communities. And so you can have a situation, we were talking about this with one of our community partners right now, where if there is um, food apartheid, you certainly, you can go into that community, you can help to develop community gardens, you can um, get the citizens engaged and involved. And, and we know that they do that, that that happens. But the sustainability of that is the question. And so this is where it points back to what Tony mentioned, we need economic assistance. So how can we have investment in those communities so that there's a grocery store that is in that community? And so it's not, um, always on the backs of the individuals that are experiencing the disparities, but there's some investment by corporations, by the government to provide these opportunities that will help to address some of the health related issues. So I think it is kind of for us in a long term is seeing what could work in these communities, what has been working because these communities, you know, they're not um, these helpless individuals that are sitting there waiting for researchers to swoop in, they are fixing their, their challenges. They are, they are very resourceful <laughs> and they are pulling together. They're, they're getting that engagement that we often hear, well, these communities aren't engaged. Um, they don't wanna participate. They're doing that on the ground. We need to find a way to bridge that gap so that we can help use what they're doing and scale it to larger impact across their communities. Find what works in one community and see if one community in South Texas and see if this same, um, the same solution will work in West Texas in a community that looks similar to that. And just trying to help to build that scale so that we can address those issues. And I think long-term that is the space I would like to see the center in is trying to um, support these communities in a way that they haven't been supported historically um, to, to amplify what the challenges are that are existing in those communities and then to work with them to develop real life solutions that will help them right now, but then also to help develop how to sustain that um, as they move forward, as we, as we all move on from different spaces um, to make sure that they have that ability to keep what they've developed in their community so that it can help citizens now and in the future. Well, and do you encourage um, like community organizations to reach out to the center if they, you know, want to partner or, or, or build those, those bridges, kind of like what you were talking about before? Certainly this one, I mean, you know, to speak of one partner, um, that's exactly what happened with one of the community partners that we have. He, um, 
he saw what we were doing. He reached out. We actually missed his call the first time. We returned his call and we've been, you know, communicating with one another since. And we've been trying to develop projects that we can uh, collaborate on uh, to address some of the needs that he's he's communicated are going on in his in his community. So, yes, we do. We yeah. do. <laughs> to, to, to put it simply, yes, we do encourage uh, them to, to contact us if they think we can we can do some good and work together. So for those who aren't medical professionals or professors or policymakers, but who want to do something to address these gaps that exist, are there ways to help? So yeah, I think there are so many ways to help. You know, one of the things that I think happened that was a harbinger for where we are now, of course, is the murder of George Floyd. And, and we were at a space because of the pandemic where we had to pay attention. Um, and so people were forced to see things that they maybe were aware of, but hadn't really seen previously. Um, and so I think, you know, one way for the, the average citizen to, to help is to just be more attentive, to believe um, people of color, to believe women, to believe that these experiences are real and being experienced across these communities. I think that's the key um, factor because once you're more aware, then you're able to fall into a space where you're able to help in a more constructive way. So then you can be an advocate. You can um, participate in policy initiatives to push policy forward. Um, you can volunteer. A lot of these communities, as um, Tony mentioned before, our community partners, they're on shoestring budgets. They are, um, and sometimes what they need are boots on the ground. People that can just really kind of give a hand and help out. Um, because they understand that the need is there and that it's real. And so I think that that's something that um, people can immediately do. Um, but then I also think that it's nice um, when other people outside of those who are affected are amplifying the cause. Um, I think, you know, the people who are people and communities of color who've been affected by um, racism and health inequities um, are exhausted and, and they're, they're exasperated with trying to prove that this is something that they're experiencing. And so I think people who are in those in different spaces have an ability to amplify those stories, um, to call attention, to highlight that. Um, because if we are going to operate um, as a collective, um, because we are also very interdependent upon each other. And so we need those voices of people who can push change um, for the individuals who maybe are disempowered or maybe don't have the opportunities to push that. Um, so I think those voices are really important um, and having those individuals present is something that can really be helpful for those who are outside of the folks who can, you know, be more culturally responsive as physicians or conduct research or actually move legislation forward. There's, there's a hand that we all can have and sometimes it's very small and sometimes it's, it's so small it's just you with one person um, and sometimes it's much more meaningful. Thank you for listening to UNT Pod. To learn more about UNT's Center for Racial and Ethnic Equity in Health and Society, please see the link in our show notes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at UNT Social and on Instagram at UNT. Until next time, be safe.